Normally, as you hear the book of Habakkuk taught, um, a preacher or a teacher will focus on the first and the third chapters in Habakkuk. Those are the, 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 the situation and then the resolution to the situation. Often what's skipped in Habakkuk is chapter 2. In fact, when I taught this book and preached this book 10 years ago or so, I gave chapter 2 to an intern. Uh, no joke on that one. <laughs> And so now we're going to actually dive into chapter 2 because I think it's going to be helpful for us. It, it has been another, another hard week. Um, hasn't it? It's just, it's amazing to me. Um, it's, it's almost hard to focus uh, as we watch our nation tear apart politically. And we wonder what the next days or weeks or hours or years will hold. And if you're like me at all, it's been a difficult week to concentrate. You've been easily distracted by the news, by checking social media to see how people are reacting to the news, and for just secretly longing maybe in your home for things just to go away. Over the course of the last year, a lot of planned sermons have been scrapped by pastors and hastily replaced by a sermon on the response to a pandemic, on racism, on a Christian's relationship to governmental authority. And at times this week, I wondered if this would be another opportunity for that or another time of necessity for that. There were thoughts in that direction as I discussed it with Nate and Andrew, but in the end, I think it's good for us to stay in our series on the minor prophets, and I'll tell you why. Old Testament prophets speak God's word to God's people, They remind God's people of God's character and God's covenant. More often than not, the prophets of the Old Testament were speaking God's word to a people in the midst of national and international chaos. And they reminded people of God's character and God's covenant while nations were being invaded and put into exile, while evil and anarchy was almost the norm, If you remember Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 3, this line, destruction and and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. We looked at that verse seven days ago and said it's fairly descriptive of our time, not just Habakkuk's day and age. And then our nation's capital was mobbed this week and even more, right? Even more, just like took it up another notch in the last seven days since we first looked at that verse. The challenge as we examined Habakkuk last week was to have a joyful faith despite hard circumstances. But the question that might still be unresolved for many of us is this. How is that joyful faith possible when chaos abounds in our world? How can joyful faith be Possible when the memory of prosperous circumstances is more captivating to us than faith in a God who seems absent? That is such a massively important question for us to wrestle with, and it's one that I want us to push into further as we continue our study in Habakkuk. How do we muster up joyful faith when the world seems to be descending into chaos? And if we're going to find an answer to that, we desperately need the help of God's Spirit. So let's turn to God in prayer before we dive into Habakkuk. Father, you told Habakkuk the prophet that you were doing a work in his days that he would not believe if told. 
and we confess our ignorance about what you are doing in our days. We simply do not know what you are doing, but we have been told and we believe that you are eternal, that you are sovereign, and that you are holy. So even when we don't understand, which is most of the time, help us to look to you and find hope. Through your spirit, teach us this morning about your glory in your son, and in his name we pray. Amen. Habakkuk was not the only figure in your Bible to suffer great loss and struggle with trying to find joyful faith despite that. He wasn't the only character. In fact, if you kind of remember back to your Sunday school stories, you'll find characters like that that abound in the scriptures. The psalmists would utter cries of lament over the state of the world repeatedly. Other prophets like Jeremiah and Jonah grieved at the wickedness of both God's people and the wickedness of the enemies of God's people. One of the more famous sufferers in the Bible was a guy named Job. You remember Job? The book of Job has a very similar pattern to Habakkuk, although it spread over 42 chapters compared to Habakkuk's three chapters. It might be the reason I prefer Habakkuk sometimes, simply the word count. One of the striking differences, though, between Job and Habakkuk is not just the word count, it's the ending of the book. After Job has lost his family, after Job has lost his wealth, after Job has been desperately sick, he hears of God's glory, responds to God's glory in worship after his lament, after his questions and dialogue with God, and then at the end of the book of Job, what happens? Job regains his prosperity. He's healthy again. He has more kids. That happens sometimes by the grace of God, right? After loss, sometimes we find gain. Praise God for that. But sometimes it doesn't happen. Right? It doesn't. After loss, sometimes we find ourselves destitute. Not necessarily restored in terms of our financial or health situation. And this is where Habakkuk seems to land. At the end of chapter 3, the agrarian economy of Judah has been laid waste and there is no hope for a late crop. They're facing famine, it seems. The Babylonians are knocking on the door about to invade and Habakkuk says with resolve, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. And so even though his story isn't ending up like Job's restorative story, he's still finding joy in the God of his salvation. We spent a lot of time looking at that last week. In the course of the dialogue of this book between Habakkuk and God, Habakkuk has affirmed some central truths about God. If you look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1, Habakkuk has said that God is eternal, that God is from everlasting. He has also said that God is in sovereign control. God has ordained the nations as a judgment. He has said in verse 13 that God is pure and holy. And yet, this question, the question is, how can God allow the Babylonians, who are like a level 10 on the evil scale, how can God allow the Babylonians to judge the Israelites, who are maybe like a level 8? On the evil scale. That doesn't, that doesn't seem fair. In fact, for Habakkuk, he's likely saying, shouldn't the reverse be the case here? Shouldn't we, because we're a little better than the Babylonians at least, we're not that bad, 
Shouldn't we be allowed to judge them by your sovereign hand? It's a fair question. Because the situation doesn't seem fair. Shouldn't God be doing the reverse or something completely different? Because this plan does not seem right. The tension behind that question is not easily resolved in this book because God is going to point to something much bigger and God's answer can be found in the second chapter of this little book. This central chapter of Habakkuk kind of fits our notion of what an Old Testament prophet is like. Um, We tend to have the stereotype of a long-bearded old man with a shofar horn blowing and screaming on the street corners, woe to you, to passers-by who got waylaid by this guy, right? That's kind of our image of an Old Testament prophet, and it's quite fitting and not too far off sometimes. We'll see that in Habakkuk chapter 2. There are five woes in this chapter, and we'll turn our attention to them this morning. God calls Habakkuk in chapter 2 to understand that judgment is indeed coming for the Babylonians. He's also calling Habakkuk, though, to understand that God's glory is eternal while the Babylonian glory is fleeting. And as God is forecasting the doom and judgment that will fall on Babylon, he's also holding up something greater and infinitely more satisfying to Habakkuk and to the people of Israel. Chapter 2 is not just the doom of Babylon. It's certainly that, though. It is the triumph of the glory of God that is forecasted. The call to Habakkuk and God's people is to revel in the beauty of God's glory in this central passage. If God had said to Habakkuk, Babylon will fall and Israel will rise, that would have made Habakkuk and the Israelites very happy. But it would have been a short-term, earthbound hope, a temporary hope. God, in this section, is going to say, Babylon and all nations and empires like her will fall well God's glory will fill the earth. And that's an eternal hope, unbound by our puny imaginations and longings. And that is what we ultimately need. If you know me at all, if you had a conversation with me for more than 30 seconds, you probably realize that I graduated from Michigan State University in 1997. And I have been a rabid Spartan fan since my time on the banks of the beautiful Red Cedar River. The enemy of the Spartan is the Wolverine, just like the enemy of the Viking is the Packer or the Bear. I must admit that I find a measure of joy when the Wolverines lose. It makes me glad. I know, it's sick, it's twisted, but you do the same, right? The Bears, the Packers, you kind of love to see them take a hit. That joy of seeing the Wolverines lose is a temporary, unsatisfactory joy. Real joy as a Spartan fan comes when a new banner is hoisted above the Breslin Center into the rafters. It's not an eternal joy, but it's certainly more satisfying than just seeing my enemy lose. Do you see that? God will relay a future judgment on Babylon in the form of five taunt songs or woe. But it's not Babylon's downfall that will feel eternal, joyful faith in Habakkuk and God's people. It is a vision of God's eternal, unbound glory that they need to see. And God's glory is infinitely more satisfying and joy-producing than the simple downfall of an enemy. 
God's people have perpetually misplaced their hope into temporary forms of power and influence rather than the lasting and enduring and supremely satisfying glory and majesty of their God. We tie our hope to a political party or individual, and we are disappointed. On both sides, let's be honest. We tie our hope to personal prosperity and wealth in this life, and we are disappointed. We tie our hope to a specific relationship, and we are disappointed. We are petty creatures, are we not? Habakkuk's resolution in chapter 3, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, is a result of a transfer of hope from his circumstances to God's glory. He seems to find joy in the glory of God rather than the restoration of his crops. Joyful faith for you will come only if your hope is connected to an eternal God. Habakkuk 2 will show the results of misplaced hope as we go through it quickly. God has already characterized the Babylonians, also known as the Chaldeans, in case you're confused, as a people whose own might is their God, chapter 1, verse 11. And as the page turns to chapter 2, the futility of the Babylonians' misplaced hope will be spelled out in a series of five woes. These woes have been called taunt songs by scholars because they are proclaimed by the survivors of Babylonian oppression. If you look at chapter 2, verse 6, you see that it says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him, the Babylonian, with scoffing and riddles for him? So at some future time, God is forecasting, those oppressed by Babylon will pronounce Babylon's doom. I must take a moment here and admit a certain amount of smack talk that I engage in, not when I'm playing sports because I'm not athletically gifted in the least, but when I'm playing cards, especially a game that all of us from Michigan know very well, a game called Euchre that you may not know in Minnesota. As I play Euchre with my family, especially my sister, there is a level of twisted joy and satisfaction in outplaying an opponent and saying, you think that card's going to take this? Did you forget about the one I've got here? And then slapping it on the table with thrill. There's a reason my non-competitive wife refuses to play games with me. I'm not very fun sometimes, unless you're like me. And as we'll see in these woes, the survivors will proclaim a reversal of fortune. You think you're so big, Babylon? You're nothing. The assumed reality of Babylon might crumble. Uh, the assumed reality of Babylon might Sorry, let me say it again. The assumed reality of Babylonian might crumbles before an eternal, all-powerful God. Those oppressed, victimized survivors of Babylon, Babylonian evil will eventually say, woe to you. And so let's look at these. Let's survey them. The first woe is found in chapter 2, starting in the second half of verse 6 to verse 8. Here's what the survivors will say. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell on them. Here you see that the Babylonians have decided to accumulate things to themselves at any cost. The first woe pronounces judgment on a people who gained their wealth by extortion and financial oppression. 
They have taken what is not their own, and they have plundered many nations. They have essentially built an identity based on their wealth, which they have accumulated at any cost. And if it means financially strangling those indebted to them, so be it. If it means theft, so be it. They want more, and so they find a way to take it. Who cares about the death toll and the suffering in their wake? But in the end, things will be reversed. The plundered becomes the plunderers. The victims arise. And there's a stern warning in a woe like this to those of us in how, to us in how we accumulate wealth and goods. If it's done without a care to the potential harm done to others, God forecasts a judgment, a reversal of fortune. Second woe, verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. The second woe is very similar to the first woe in that the wickedness is in the oppression and lack of care for other people. But here the goal is not just the accumulation of wealth, it's the building of a legacy or a reputation at any cost again. A great name or a great house is achieved, but it has been gained by cutting off many peoples. And once again, the futility of this misplaced hope and identity comes as the house crumbles in the end. You say you're so great, it'll all come falling down. Woe to you, you have forfeited your life. The third woe is the central woe in this passage. Verses 12 through 14, look at it. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This third woe goes after those who enslave others to build up their own towns. It's a misuse of power, oppressing people so that you can have more. People are treated like animals, slaves, so that the Babylonian glory can be built up. Growth is sought at any cost. The noteworthy thing in this middle woe is that there is no direct uprise from the oppressed people like there were in the first two. There's no judgment enacted by the, the oppressed or proclaimed by the oppressed. If you look at the result in verse 14, something different takes place here. You see the result here is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In all the other woes, the result is the shame of the oppressor as the oppressed people get their day. Justice comes. But here, in this central woe, the shame comes but not in mere defeat of the Babylonians. The shame comes as something infinitely greater than their little towns is made known and fills the earth. God's glory is known and saturates the earth. The Babylonians were famous for some of their architecture. You may have heard about the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. They also constructed uh, ziggurats, which are kind of these Babylonian-style pyramids in most of their major towns, places of worship and sacrifice, and central police in each town. And they were well known for that. So here what you see in this passage here is God saying, you Babylonians think you're powerful. 
You think your towns and your hanging gardens and your ziggurats are so beautiful, God's glory is going to flood the earth. The Babylonians knew of a worldwide flood. They had preserved a tale, a myth of the world's destruction in the Epic of Gilgamesh. And if you remember earlier floods, whether they're biblical floods or Babylonian stories, those who thought they were powerful were consumed by God's judgment. There's a reference to the flood in verse 14 here. The Babylonians also believed that the earth floated on a sea of water. So their cosmology understood the earth to be covering the sea. And there's a not-so-subtle irony to God's glory covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's comically beautiful in this passage, in a Bible nerd kind of way. It's typical of ancient Hebrew literature to put the main point of a poem, in particular, in the middle of a section. We tend to do it at the end. Hebrew poets often did it in the middle. And the striking difference between the result of this woe and the result of the others highlights that structure. There's a pinnacle of hope in this verse 14 for people oppressed by wickedness. And it is not the downfall of their oppressors alone, although that is assured in the other woes. The ultimate hope in verse 14 is found in God's glory being made known, which includes the downfall of their oppressors, but is so much more than that. God will be glorified in the judgment of his enemies, but God will also be glorified in the salvation of his people, those who turn to him in faith. More on that in a second. But first we need to conclude our woes. Woe number four is found in verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors uh, drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell on them. Earlier woes looked at the abuse of others financially. Here we see the abuse of others sexually. Babylonians were notorious drunkards and here are condemned for taking advantage of others' inebriated state for sexual abuse. Pleasure is indulged in, again, at any cost. And the judgment is almost taken up a notch in description in verse 16 because it's no longer the abused and oppressed who enact judgment. It is God's right hand himself. Interestingly, the abuse of land and animals is mentioned in verse 17. Not only did the Babylonians take advantage of other humans, they also laid waste to conquered areas. The Babylonians took a scorched earth approach to the conquest of Lebanon to the north of Israel, clear-cutting the mighty cedars of Lebanon, famed cedar trees, slaughtering livestock and wildlife. And once again, the reverse will come true. The violence they have done will be done to them. They will be shamed in the end. And the final woe is found beginning in verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. Like most cultures, Babylon had a pantheon of gods. The chief god was Marduk, 
who had dozens of titles found in ancient inscriptions and literature. And Marduk was often depicted with a pet dragon. Households and cities then also had their own individual gods, and idols were built, worshipped, and consulted for guidance. But in the end, these idols were futile. They're silent. They're speechless in verse 18. They can't teach or instruct. They won't help when trouble comes. The absurdity of idol worship is mocked again in comical fashion. And the alternative is found in verse 20. Instead of worshiping speechless idols, all peoples should keep silence and worshipfully approach the Lord who reigns over all in his temple. So, but the Lord is in his holy temple, verse 20. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God is in his temple ruling over all things while idols are on shelves speechless. Throughout this series of woes, God has nudged people, sometimes quite forcefully, to turn from false hopes of possessions or reputation or power or sexual immorality, all this idolatry, and look to something greater. Listen, building your identity on anything other than God's glory, as the Babylonian Empire so clearly did, and God's glory, which is ultimately found and experienced through Jesus, building your identity on anything other than that results in a massive net loss. The Babylonians, verse 16, will have their fill of shame instead of glory. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to them and utter shame will come upon them. God will be seen as greater than the Babylonians because God's judgment will fall on the Babylonian empire. But also, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All the idols that the Babylonians utilized and worshipped, their own might, it's doomed, Habakkuk is saying. God's glory, however, is eternal. So keep silent before him. Worship God Alone. But still, I think maybe Habakkuk and us alongside him might be tempted to ask, How long do they get their day? Can't your justice be swifter? Habakkuk was living in a time when the kingdom of Israel was divided and falling apart. Assyria would destroy the northern part of the kingdom and Babylon would plunder the southern part of the kingdom. Habakkuk's people would be carted off in exile to a, for a generation before Persia would conquer Babylon and people slowly trickled back to Israel. But they would return to an impoverished, weak nation with competing warlords and a pathetic attempt at reconstructing the glory of Solomon's temple. Eventually, Greece would conquer Persia, and a new series of oppressive overlords would rule over Israel before Rome came to power and pushed their foot down even harder on the people of Israel. In 70 AD, Rome destroyed the next temple, virtually wiped out Jews and Jewish Christians, destroyed the temple, and sent the people of Israel all over the world in exile again. And throughout this these hundreds of years of conquests and oppressions, the call on God's people is found in Habakkuk 2, verse 4. And it remains, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, put your hope in God's ultimate victory, not in the temporary hopes of Babylonians 
or Persians or Greeks or Israelites or Romans or Ottomans or Austro-Hungarians or Englishmen or Chinese or Americans. Put your hope in God. Placing your hope and faith in God's glory rather than the idols of this world does something. Listen to Paul's words. Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, since we've been made right with God through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul knew his Habakkuk there, didn't he? He's channeling Habakkuk in those verses. The suffering doesn't end until our death or until Christ's return. However, the opportunity for joy continues as our gaze focuses on God's glory found in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In order to find joy in the most difficult of circumstances, we must see and hold on to a vision of a greater glory than what we often think as most glorious. We think possessions or power or freedom or sexual pleasure or wealth are glorious. Many of those things are good things, but only God's glory is ultimate. The Babylonians' judgment was fulfilled as the Persians swept west. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord has not yet covered the earth. So God's people are continually called to faith. God's justice is not always swift, but it is certain. There's a picture up there of Babylon fairly recently. You might look at that and say, well, at least there's one nice palace up there. That palace is Saddam Hussein's palace. A little earlier, or a little later than the Babylonian Empire, the ruins in front of it are Babylonian ruins. Babylon was plundered by the Persians and then the Greeks and then countless others as nations went back and forth through the Middle East. Its ruins have continued to face destruction at the hands of Iraqis and some American bombs. God will judge. Puffed up nations like Babylon will be shamed. We tend to look at the temporary situation and we see Babylonian glory. God looks at the eternal and sees Babylonian shame. We tend to look at the temporary situation and we see God's seeming absence. In reality, God is moving to spread the knowledge of his glory throughout the world. So how do we respond when God's justice tarries then? The righteous will live by faith. Our ultimate hope is not in the shame of the wicked. Our ultimate hope is in God's glory being displayed and made known. 2,000 years ago, God's glory broke into this world anew in a manger in Bethlehem. And that glory was gradually revealed as Jesus showed his superiority over sickness and suffering over demons and death. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. And as the news of Jesus' power and divinity and sacrifice and resurrection continues to spread, the earth is being covered with a knowledge of the glory of God. Habakkuk's prophecy is being fulfilled as the gospel spreads around the world. Praise God for that. But let's ask it personally this morning. Where is your hope? Do you find yourself in one of the woes because you have attached your hope to something in this life? 
or is your joy in the glory of God? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. It's always good to quote C.S. Lewis. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Those who place their hope in worthless idols will fall to ruin. They are making mud pies in a slum. Those who place their hope in the eternal God can find eternal joy, a holiday at the sea. Why? Ultimately, our hope and joy must be found in God's suffering Son, Jesus Christ, the only source of eternal joy. And as we wrap up our study of Habakkuk, look at one often overlooked verse near the end of Habakkuk. Verse 13 of chapter 3. Here's what it reads. You, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Habakkuk here was certainly remembering God's victory over the Egyptians, but there are a few shadows of Jesus in this passage. First, if you notice the word anointed, it refers to God's chosen Davidic king, which ultimately would be Jesus. As God anointed David as king over his people, he said, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of the kingdom forever. Ultimately, that promise transferred from David to Solomon and on down through the generations to a man named Joseph who adopted a son named Jesus. See Matthew 1 for more on that. God preserved Israel, even in Habakkuk's day, for the salvation of his anointed king and ultimately the salvation of his people. Jesus will reign eternally as God's anointed king. But there's a second shadow in that verse. Verse 13, you crushed the head of the wicked. Shortly after creation, after the first man, women, Adam and Eve, had fallen into sin, a promise was given to the serpent who deceived them as he was cursed. In Genesis 3.15, a descendant of Eve was said would come who would bruise the head of the serpent. And in his triumph over sin and death on the cross, Jesus didn't just bruise Satan. Satan's doom was sealed. His head was crushed. Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The Babylonians and all idolaters who follow in their footsteps will be shamed by the glory of God found in his son's triumphant death and resurrection. Our hope is not just in some reversal of fortunes or a return to 2019. Our hope is fixed on the glory of God found in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our saving king. If your deepest hope is found in the things of this world, you will wind up miserable. If your deepest hope is found in the eternal glory of God, you can live with joyful faith while pr properly enjoying the things of this world as good gifts, but not ultimate, because only God's glory is ultimately satisfying. Habakkuk is an amazing little book. I hope you've read it in your own time, and I hope you'll continue to savor it and enjoy it. 
Next week, we'll turn to the book of Micah, and it's about a 30-minute read or so, so maybe you want to spend some time this week reading Micah as Nate prepares to preach that book next week. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and beg for his help as we remember our lessons from Habakkuk. Father, you are glorious, and that glory is being made known as the news of your son's triumph spreads to every land, people, tribe, and tongue. Compared to the surpassing joy of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, all other glories are made nothing. You alone are eternal, you alone are holy, you alone are great. So turn our eyes to Christ and help us to find him as glorious so that we can say along with Habakkuk and all God's people, no matter the circumstances, no matter the events of our day, yet we will rejoice in the Lord. We will take joy in the God of our salvation. And it's in Christ's glorious name that we pray. Amen.